Since you are standing for the reading of God's Word, I will begin reading at verse 25 of Romans chapter 11, and I will read to the end of the chapter. God's Holy Word. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Thus the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Our Father, we pray that as we enter now into the grace of the preached word, that we might hear your voice alone the voice of your Spirit speaking to our minds and our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last weekend, Pastor Paul, Ty, Bobby, and I took a long trip to south-central Wisconsin for what proved to be a very uplifting men's retreat. Several times during our nine or ten hour drive, though, I wanted to ask sort of like the donkey on Shrek, or like our young children often do, are we there yet? Maybe some of you have asked that same question in our long journey through the book of Romans. Remember when we started in chapter nine, I held up our bulletin and highlighted the verse on the front cover and said, this is where we are going. This is our destination. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Are we, are we there yet? We are there. For from Him are all things, meaning God is the source of all things. And through Him are all things, meaning He's the agent by which all things come about. And to him are all things, meaning he's the final end and reason 
for all things. So to him be glory forever. Amen. Our first catechism question asks, What is the chief end of man? Well, what's the answer? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But I could ask, what is God's chief end? And the answer is, God's chief end is to glorify himself because he alone is all-glorious. By the time the Apostle Paul reaches the end of chapter 11 in his inspired writing, he bursts into doxology. Not because he sees or understands God's glory exhaustively, not by a long shot, but rather because the Apostle Paul sees a tiny glimpse of God's glory in God's gracious salvation plan to bring many Jews and Gentiles to faith in Christ. With the revelation of this mystery now made known, the Apostle cannot contain himself any longer. He bursts, he bursts into praise under the one true God who holds all things in the palm of his hand, who is sovereign over all things, so that all things should bring glory to his name. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we learn something here from the greatest theologian of all time, don't we? We learn that our theology must result in praise and worship, giving God all the glory. If our study of God and His ways does not result in our praise of Him, then our theology is misplaced, and we need to evaluate our own hearts for the pride that still lurks within us. Too often, Reformed folks pride themselves in their theological precision and fail to let the truth of God's Word bring them to the place of humble worship before the eternal God. Having studied together the entire doctrinal section of Paul's letter to the Romans, I think you will agree that this epistle comes as close to being a systematic theology as any other book in the entire Bible. It's a book about the gospel and God's covenant faithfulness to redeem a people for himself out of the cesspool of rebellious humanity and to bless them with untold riches in Christ. If our understanding of this does not move us to a greater worship of God and commitment to one another, then what we have learned about God is misplaced. When God says through Paul, for example, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, it should move us to a doxology of praise. Why? Because for God to graciously love anyone, absolutely anyone in this world, should boggle our minds. Jacob was no more worthy of God's grace and salvation and God's love than Esau was. God's glorious justice could have been the final word on the matter for all of us. Because all men deserve God's justice in hell forever but it should amaze us and move us that God has graciously chosen us for salvation. 
That is his prerogative. The heresy of universalism is the belief that everyone in the end will be saved and go to heaven. But those who hold to universalism do not know the God of the scriptures because God says something very different. It says in Romans 9 verse 22, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has been patient with sinners who are prepared for, de prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory to his children of faith? Even those who are predestined to eternal destruction bring glory to God. Does not the potter, Paul asks, in the same chapter, have a ride over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Who could have ever come up with a God? who sovereignly uses sin and even the worst forms of evil as a means of bringing glory to himself, and yet is never personally culpable. This truth is brought forward throughout the scriptures, but I think you'll agree it is seen most clearly in the cross of Jesus Christ. The most evil and heinous crime ever committed is the very point at which God graciously saves his people boggles the Christian mind. Notice with me verse 32 of Romans 11, which just precedes Paul's, Paul's doxology of praise. Verse 32 really summarizes chapters 9 through 11. It could even be said to summarize all of God's word in total. It reads, for God has, I'm sorry, for God has consigned all to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. That is, he has consigned all men fallen in, in Adam, both Jews and Gentiles, to disobedience, so that he may have mercy on all. That is, so that he may have mercy on all of his elect, both Jews and Gentiles. Oh, Paul can't believe such grace. He bursts out in verse 33. Oh, oh, is Paul's reaction. It's a gut reaction. It's a heart in shock and, and praise. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. In this glorious doxology, which ends the doctrinal section of Romans, I want us to glean from the Apostle Paul the truth that God-glorifying praise flows out of an understanding of who God is. Well, who is he, Paul, we might ask. And Paul says, I'm glad you asked that question, because he's the infinite God. Second, he's the unfathomable God. And finally, he is the sovereign God. 
Verse 33a, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. The depths here speak of God's infinity. He is the infinite God. His riches and wisdom and knowledge have no bottom to their depth. First, Paul speaks of the depth of God's riches. We get a glimpse of his infinite riches in the gospel, don't we? In chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians, Paul spoke of the immeasurable riches of the mercy and grace of God in Christ. Sadly, sometimes we pridefully come across to others like we know all there is to know about God's gospel riches when we communicate the doctrines of grace. Should we gladly communicate these precious doctrines given the opportunity legitimately? Absolutely. But we should do so ever. We should do so this ever so humbly because the riches of God's grace cannot even begin to be measured by us. Paul says they are immeasurable. Then Paul speaks of God's infinite wisdom and knowledge. My knowledge is exhausted very quickly, asked my wife, but God's knowledge is all-inclusive. He's omniscient. He not only knows all things that are, but he also knows all of the myriad of things that could potentially be. He knows all potentiality. So from all eternity, God has known every possible thing that could be, and in his, listen, in his infinite wisdom, he determined just exactly what would be, so that all things, all things serve to bring him the greatest glory. My question to you is, Won't you join the Apostle Paul in his praise to God for who he is? He alone is the all-glorious one. Won't you join the Apostle Paul this morning through Christ and praise this glorious God? The all-knowing God in his infinite wisdom met a nation out of Abraham, gathered his elect from it. In his sovereignty, Israel rejected Christ and crucified him, and sinful sinful men alone are culpable. And as a result of that uh, rejection, the gospel spread and continues to spread into the entire world, And when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, many, many Jews will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, no human being could have ever thought this up, let alone accomplished it. Thank God that all things are through him. He is the ultimate agent of all things. Praise God. No human being could have ever thought up the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ and the laying down of his life to win a people for God. Only a God who is infinite in knowledge and wisdom. 
a God who is infinite in gospel riches and who is eager to save. And then, second, he is the unfathomable God. He is the infinite God, but he is also the unfathomable God. He cannot be fully known by men. By God's grace, we can know God savingly and come, come to know him as his children to a limited degree. That is why J.I. Packard titled his book about God's attributes, Knowing God. But God so far transcends all of his creation that, <clears throat> that we have to know that even in the inspired word, it is like God talking baby talk to us so that we can understand. Our gracious God gives us all that we need in his inspired word, and it is more than sufficient through the Holy Spirit to bring us into vital union with Christ through faith and to grow us up in him. Yes, God can be known. That's why Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17, This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. But we can never know God exhaustively. Even if you knew the scriptures backwards and forwards and inside and out, you could never plumb the depths of an unfathomable God. Children, when you worship with your parents, you are worshiping a God so great that he cannot be fully understood, but he is good and he can be trusted. Children learn the marvelous Bible stories, but when you worship, say with David in Psalm 139, such knowledge about God is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Even in heaven, children, we will never know God fully. Even after a Google years of living on the new earth with Christ, which is a one, a Google is a one followed by 100 zeros. I know what a Google is because I Googled it. Even after a Google years in heaven, we will still be scratching the surface in understanding our infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God. But it is not just the person of God that is unfathomable. Paul's outburst of praise teaches us that his ways are also unfathomable and his judgments are beyond finding out. Verse 33b, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Inscrutable translates a Greek word that literally literally refers to footprints that are untrackable. We live in an area here where people love to hunt, don't we? And some of our own members are excellent trackers of deer, turkey, and other wildlife. But God's footprints are untrackable, trackable, unfathomable, inscrutable, in the sense that his ways are beyond our understanding. 
The psalmist expressed this exact idea in Psalm 77, verse 19, when he declared about God, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unknown. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. God's judgments here are referring to God's eternal degrees, decrees, and they are unsearchable, and his ways are the working out of his decrees in providence. His ways are inscrutable in the sense that we could never fully understand why he unfolds his providence the way he does. We have to trust him. We have all struggled with God's providence in our lives, and we can't, for the life of us, fully figure out how this painful situation that we are going through is in God's providence. But he knows exactly what he is doing. What about this sickness, we ask? What about this trouble I am experiencing? What about my unsaved son or daughter or father or mother? I cannot fully fathom how any of this can bring glory to God, but it does. Every inch of it does. Every ounce of it. Every single thing, little or big, that occurs brings God's God glory. Job was going through a tremendous trial, the, the likes of which few Christians have seen. And through it, Job learned about the unfathomable ways of God. Remember, Job wanted an interview with God so that God would explain to him why all these terrible things were happening to him. However, what God in essence did was say to Job, If I explained these things to you, you would not be able to understand them. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who determined its measurements? Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Who shut in the sea with doors? God's providential ways are unfathomable and his judgments are past finding out. The psalmist says in Psalm 55, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. And then last, he is the sovereign God. He is the infinite God. He is the unfathomable God. And now, Paul quoting in verses 34 from Isaiah, and in verse 35, from the book of Job, he is the sovereign God. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? The first of these questions, for who has known the mind of the Lord, looks back to the unfathomable depths of God. With the second of these questions, or who has been his counselor, Paul is saying that God does not need anyone to tell him what to do. He doesn't need counsel. All the rest of us need counsel, 
Proverbs 11.14 says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. But God, in his wisdom and self-sufficiency, does not need a counselor. He is sovereign. He is independent. He is all-sufficient, Yahweh. Everything about us is derivative not so from for him he acts according to his predetermined decrees and he is working all things out to a certain end if we were to offer god advice and if well if god were to take my puny misplaced advice it would miss mess everything up and with the third of these questions or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid Paul is saying that salvation is entirely of God. Sinners cannot do one thing to put God in their debt because God is sovereign in salvation and salvation is a free and gracious gift. God the Father devised salvation's plan. God the Son agreed to accomplish salvation's plan. And the Holy Spirit applies salvation's, salvation to God's undeserving children. Salvation is not a response on God's part to something that man has done. Oh, Kent, you did such a good job, and so I owe you salvation. Or, oh, Kent, I am so proud of you that you took your own initiative to trust in my son, and so... I am in your debt now to save you. No, there is nothing that a man or woman can do that will make God a debtor to him or her. You see, we get a tiny glimpse of the wonder of God in salvation. Will you join Paul in bursting out in praise? to this God who is so magnificent in every way. As Paul contemplates the first 11 chapters of his epistle, he bursts into praise to God, giving God all the glory. Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. For from him are all things. He's the source. And through him are all things. He's the agent. And to him are all things. He's the reason. And so to him, to him, to him, and to him, him alone be glory forever. Amen. Is there an outburst of praise in your heart for the God who saved you through faith in Jesus Christ? To the infinite God, the unfathomable God, the sovereign God who alone is worthy. And that's why the Apostle John in Revelation 4 verse 11a says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God to receive glory 
and honor and power. May he alone be praised. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we give you praise for you created all things out of nothing. The mountains exist because of you, the seas, and even all men and all beasts live because you created them. But it is just an amazing, an amazing thing that you have taken sinful man who, in, who, who is in rebellion to you and according to your good pleasure have made a new creation out of some through faith in Jesus Christ, your Son. And I, would, I, I pray, dear Lord, that all of our hearts here would contemplate Romans chapters 1 through 11 and join Paul in an outburst of praise. And now as we come to the table of the Lord, may that praise be manifest as we eat the bread and drink the cup and so be nourished by Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen.